Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, today we begin a brand new series in the study of Acts called Jesus Goes Global Confronting the Power Base. So let's turn in our Bibles to Acts chapter 16 to 20 as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message titled Taking the Gospel to Power Centers. When Edward Gibbon wrote the history of the decline and fall of the Roman Empire, it's a massive work. He had a great deal to say about the impact of Christianity on the Roman Empire. Gibbon argued that Christianity had a role to play in the decline and collapse of the empire. He argued that Christianity was more intolerant than the paganism that had preceded it, and hence it served to fracture the empire. And he also argued that Christianity wasted resources on piety and the quest for the holy life, and that these resources could have been better used in other practical areas. Of course, Gibbon was anti-Christian. I mean, even though in his personal life he went back and forth between Catholicism and Protestantism, he seemed hostile to the faith. He was also an ardent anti-Semite. And in spite of his massive work, he doesn't deal with an inconvenient truth. Rome fell to invaders in AD 476, and yet the more Christian part of the empire, the eastern part, carried on for another 1,000 years. And furthermore, the tolerance he speaks of in paganism, well, that's a dubious claim indeed. We will encounter the paganism Gibbon feels is so tolerant in Acts chapters 16 to 20. It's viciously intolerant, and it is ready to persecute anyone who challenges it with vigor. Tolerant indeed. You know, one more comment. Will Durant, also an excellent historian, but who wrote a century later, in the 20th century, argues that Christianity was not the cause of the decline of the empire at all. Durant mentions the expanding bureaucracy of Rome, of her inherent corruption, so on. Indeed, he writes that the breakup of the old paganism the lack of faith in her gods and goddesses, that had already started before the time of Christ, and the moral disintegration was already on display in the second century BC. Durant says that the corrupt Roman state defended its wealth, even if it meant poverty for many, that Rome fought many of its battles to capture slaves, that she overtaxed the poor, and she didn't protect its citizens from famine and invasion and pestilence and destitution. So let me quote Durant. Forgivably, they turned from Caesar preaching war to Christ preaching peace, from incredible brutality to unprecedented charity, from a life without hope or dignity to a faith that consoled their poverty and honored their humanity. Rome was not destroyed by Christianity, says Durant. It's an empty shell when Christianity arose. Now, I raise these matters because all historians chronicle that Christianity, the new religion, with very few financial resources and with no political capital and no armies or police to protect it, stripped even of the protections that were afforded to Judaism, managed to capture a great part of the Roman Empire. A seemingly weak and seemingly defenseless faith in Jesus proved more powerful than the imperial might of Rome. The Roman Empire that thought nothing of joining with the Jewish priestly class to crucify the prophet from Galilee, was now finding that their own people abandoned faith in the empire and were embracing Jesus as their Messiah, their Savior, and their Lord. What happened in the Roman Empire is Christianity went from what many would have considered a minor sect within Judaism 
to the faith that was capturing the hearts of untold millions is a story that is, frankly, the most unlikely story in human history. And I mention all of this to start our study of the book of Acts, chapter 16 to 20, which, as we will see, is the story of how the faith crossed the ocean and took root in Greece, the place where Europe began. And from there, although it's not part of the story of Acts 16 to 20, the faith would very quickly penetrate even into Caesar's own household. Acts 16 to 20 is the beginning of a story that declares that Jesus is greater than Caesar. And so once and for all is the answer to the question, who is Lord, Caesar or Christ? And so since the answer is now obvious, we're reminded that in the end of the day, when all human civilizations have crumbled and collapsed, when the long war against God has been exhausted and lies in ruins, over the ruin will be the cross of Christ, towering as John Bowering wrote in 1825, towering o'er the wrecks of time. The book of Acts, on the one hand, can be described as the New Testament book that is the history of the early church from the resurrection and ascension of Jesus in AD 33 to the imprisonment of Paul in AD 62. In short, it's a brief history of Christianity for its first 30 or I guess 29 years. But of course, the book of Acts is so much more than that. The book is a book that is the early Christian response to the command of Jesus, Matthew 24, 14. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. And Matthew 28, 19 to 20 records Jesus now risen from the dead, giving his last command to his disciples. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Indeed, Luke, who is the author of Acts in his previous book, the book of Luke, ends that account of the life of Jesus by describing the risen Jesus in a conversation with two of his disciples on the road to Emmaus. They in their grief don't realize it is their risen Savior walking beside them. And then in one of their homes, Luke, at the end of the book, describes the turning point in that conversation. Luke 24, 45 to 47. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Then as Luke begins his second book, the book of Acts, the history of the first 30 years of the church of Jesus, he recounts the last words of Jesus just before Jesus ascends into heaven. There are promise from Jesus to his church, Acts 1 verse 8 but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And that's the book of Acts. It's the first 30 years of this story to bring the gospel of Jesus, that saving news, that forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed to all the nations, to all ethnic groups. And Acts is the promise that while this task is ridiculously impossible, and while the gospel will be vigorously opposed, the promise of the Holy Spirit will give the church that which armies and finances and government protection and even laws favorable to them simply can't give. So let's talk about why Acts was written and then why it's so very important for us to study it and then also how we are to apply what we learn to our lives and our churches and the mission that Christ has given us. So why was Acts written? 
Well, Acts begins with the disciples asking the risen Jesus when he would restore the kingdom to Israel. That wasn't a dumb question, nor was the question founded on false hope. The reality of the witness of the First Testament is that David's ancient throne would again be occupied by the Messiah, and from there he would restore the kingdom. 2 Samuel 7, 12-13 When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. But of course, in time, David's kingdom would falter and fall. Some of his sons or his descendants who came from his body were less than godly. Eventually, Israel would fall to the Babylonians, but that event had been foreseen by God. Long before the fall of David's throne, the prophet Isaiah had spoken about these matters. Isaiah 11, verse 1, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And so getting back to the disciples and their question as to whether now Jesus had risen from the dead and had demonstrated that he indeed was the long-expected Messiah, the rightful king of Israel, the descendant of David. They want to know, is this when you'll restore the kingdom? And rather than criticizing their question, Jesus honors this question as a legitimate one. It's not for you, he says, to know the times and seasons when this matter will happen. It will happen, but the Father has fixed that date. But, says Jesus, there's something for you to do. Be witnesses of me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And in effect, that's the purpose of Acts. It tells how this task was begun. If Jesus wanted his saving news to be brought to every people group on earth, and then the end would come when he would take up his throne, then this is the church's response to this task until he returned. At first, the task was the immediate neighborhood. At first, the efforts of the apostles centered on Jerusalem and Judea, among the Jewish people. And that covers the first 12 chapters of this book. But then Paul and Barnabas would take the gospel into what we now know as Turkey, then called Asia. The flood of Gentile converts from Asia, that would cause a crisis. But Acts chapter 15 tells that the crisis was averted, and now the Gentiles were welcomed. But could the gospel be taken to the power centers of the world? Jesus said the gates of hell would not prevent the gospel's advance. Was he right? Acts chapter 16 to 20 actually answers that question. There is a moral decline in our society. A Christ-centered way of living no longer seems to be the norm. Without the truths of the Bible influencing our culture, this decay will only worsen. But there's hope and there is opportunity. God has called Christians to be salt and light. That is why this month, Back to the Bible Canada, is pleased to make a new booklet entitled 10 Christian Essentials for Cultural Change available to all who would request it for free. The content of this book comes from Dr. Neufeld's audio series, An Alternative Lifestyle, and presents 10 concise but powerful ways we can all affect change in the world around us. To request your free copy today, and to learn how you can help bring light to a broken world, just call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. Acts is written to show that all the words of Jesus prove true. And so if the gates of hell 
would not prevail against Jesus than certainly Rome itself. What was then called the civilized world, the world of the Greeks, the world of the intellectuals and philosophers, that world also would not hold back the gospel. And that's the reason for writing of this book. But we can also ask, how are we to apply this book today? The Roman Empire is gone and following the collapse was a long period often called the Middle Ages or Dark Ages. Eventually, Luther and the reformers would recapture the message of the Bible and a church emerged disconnected from the corrupt power of a Roman church. But the Reformation was also anything but perfect. And so here we are today, when at least from one perspective, Christianity is fractured and hopelessly divided. Furthermore, scandals within the visible Christian church have been many, leaving a great many people disillusioned. Does the Christian faith and the quest for holiness have anything in common? But against the failures of the modern church, we find that the church of Jesus is growing in the least likely places on earth and in lands where it's not protected and where the followers of Jesus are again facing a storm of intolerance. And furthermore, in the West, where the gospel first came so very long ago, we see the arrival of the same paganism that was once deeply rooted in the Roman Empire. You know, in many ways, what we read in Acts, although occurring at a unique time in history, has so many lessons for us today. But there are still questions of interpretation. And one of those is simply this. To what extent should we read the events that occur in Acts and try to recreate them today? And what I have in mind here is a news article I read not long ago. It's a story of a kind of a street evangelist who had come to the United States from another country. He would walk the streets of large American cities and he'd lay his hands on random people and he'd pronounce them healed. And his message was, why is the church of today so unlike the church found in Acts? And what he had in mind was not its courage in the face of intimidation. Rather, what he meant is, why aren't we doing the kind of miracles that we find in Acts? Now, he's not the first person to talk that way, but I noticed, you know, in the videos that he had produced, he claimed to heal people from, you know, headaches and itchy scalps and all sorts of stuff like that. He never did raise the dead, nor did he show videos of people getting saved and of churches being begun, or did he display his grasp of the apostolic doctrine of Christ. And I mention this only as an example that when we seek to learn from the book of Acts, it's best for us not to be naive. See, the book of Acts no more tells us to do the miracles the apostles did than it tells us to visit the cities of Lystra and Derbe or Athens and Corinth. I mean, one of the things we should learn in our study of any Bible book is the difference between a command, a promise, and a description of a historical event. Acts is not there to teach us that if only we had apostles in our day, we could do the same miracles they did in theirs. See, in order to believe that, you'd have to find a command in the book that leads us to believe that's what we should do. In fact, a careful study of Acts will lead us in the exact opposite direction. Indeed, I think about what we will study as we prepare for Acts 16 to 20. See, these chapters chronicle how the gospel came to Greece, but also how it impacted the city of Ephesus, which was still back on the Asian side of the Roman Empire. But Ephesus was one of the leading cities in the Roman Empire, and so Acts 16 to 20 tells us how the gospel came to the most important and influential cities in the Roman Empire. Rome itself accepted, at least at this point. The book tells us of the relentless advance of the gospel and of the cost that was paid to bring the message. But what of the miracles? 
Well, here it becomes interesting. We might remember in the earlier part of Acts, miracles indeed played a prominent role, starting with the tongues of fire that rested on the heads of the followers of Jesus on the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem. And then, of course, there's the healing of the lame man who was lame from birth. That was performed by Peter and John at the beautiful gate of the temple. You know, in those days, many signs and wonders were being done. And miracles carried on in Paul and Barnabas' first missionary journey. Acts 13 describes their ministry on the island of Cyprus, where a false prophet was struck with blindness. And after that, for the rest of their ministry tour, we read actually a few miracles. And now we come to our present study, Acts 16 to 20, and we're going to find that Paul does see a vision which leads him to go to Greece in the first place. But we hear of only one miracle in Philippi, and it's not a healing. It's rather a casting out of a demon. And from there, they go to Thessalonica, then to Berea, then to Athens. And again, no miracles are recorded. And from there, we see them go to the city of Corinth, the leading city in Greece. Again, no miracles are recorded. Indeed, if we go to the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul's first letter to the Corinthian church, after he left the city, after his 18 months of ministering in that city, Luke, the author of Acts, tells us of no miracles. Of course, that doesn't mean that no miracles were done, only to say, if they were, Luke doesn't think it's central to the story. And again, back to the book of 1 Corinthians in chapter 2, Paul says, when I came to you, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Indeed, in the previous chapter, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul wrote, for Jews demand signs and Greeks speak wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. Again, I don't want to give the impression that as we go through the pages of Acts that miracles are done less frequently as we go. For as we come to Acts 19, Paul is then in Ephesus, and we're going to read in verse 11 of that chapter, God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. See, I think from Acts, what we do see is that miracles that we read there happen at God's direction and are not seen to be absent when faith is absent. Acts never makes the point that if you do the gospel the right way, miracles will follow. Indeed, a fair reading of Acts tells us that the missionaries were faithful to the gospel message and continue to preach it whether there were miracles present or not and whether there was persecution present or not. Of course, Acts is written that succeeding generations would learn something about the advance of the gospel. But that lesson is not that we should lay hands on people with some kind of a disease and pronounce them healed. See, the message of Acts is that no matter what, the gospel must continue to be preached churches must continue to be formed, and that there must be a willingness to pay the cost regardless of the threats that are uttered against the servants of Christ. Yet in the pages we will read of even one moment when Paul raises a young man, Eutychus, from the dead. The power of Jesus to do signs and wonders is found in Acts. In many ways, Acts does encourage us to pray for the sick, but we're also reminded that the activity of the gospel is preaching and winning men and women to faith in Christ, forming churches, discipling people to be faithful to the gospel. And the message of Acts is most certainly not showing people how to do miracles and get the wow factor. How then should we read Acts? Well, we should read Acts as a historical document. It's a document which describes the first stages of how the gospel grew. And we should also read Acts within the context of the entire New Testament. See, when we read about Paul's activities in Philippi, It's wise for us to remember what Paul would write to those Christians later when he writes the book of Philippians. 
And above all, we should believe that the task of making Jesus known is the task of the church, regardless of how the message is received. We should also remember that one day, the work of global evangelism is going to be complete. And then the question that was asked at the beginning of the book, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Know that one day, the answer to that question will be yes. It should also be noted that the book of Acts ends abruptly. The book ends with Paul in prison in Rome being treated as well as any prisoner could expect to be treated. He takes visitors and welcomes all who come to him for instruction. The Roman Praetorium has also heard the gospel from his lips, and now everyone in Caesar's household is heard. And we leave the story with Paul awaiting trial, a trial that Luke was not there to record. The book just ends. More than one Bible teacher has observed that the ending of the book without resolution to some of the questions that we might ask, as in, you know, what happened to Paul and what happened to Peter? What happened to the other disciples? I mean, all those questions are left unanswered. The book just ends in the middle of the action. But that tells us that the story is still being written today. It's intended that we see Acts as the introduction to the story of bringing the gospel to the world. That tells us a great deal about how we should read Acts. We should read it with great interest, knowing that this is the groundwork for our task of bringing the gospel to the world. And so instead of insisting that you know, the same miracles should be done now, we should insist that the same proclamation of Christ should be done now, regardless of the opposition that stands against us or the impossible nature of the task that stands before us. Acts teaches us that we must bring this gospel of Jesus to the whole world. John, thanks for your message and the beginning of a great series. Uh, given the title of our series, though, are we to assume that, that it's critical not only to present the gospel to individuals, but that it has a place of influence within power centers as well? Ben, we have to think that way. That is the history of our movement, and we can't be content if the gospel is only heard, believed, and followed you know, in, uh, in places that is away from the power centers of the world. We have to take the gospel to the very places where decisions are made because in those places, we find that uh, the entire nation is affected. So let's pray about that. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, Jesus Goes Global, Confronting the Power Base, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. Hi, Ben Lowell, CEO of Back to the Bible Canada. Happy New Year. And a special thanks to all who tuned in and supported the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada in 2022. With a new year upon us, many of you may be thinking about changes you'd like to make in 2023. Well, here's one to consider. Let's all commit to spending more time with God in His Word. And I've got good news. Back to the Bible Canada has a variety of resources to help you do just that, including Quiet Spaces Volume 2, a 30-day devotional by Dr. John Newfeld, or 31 Days of Hope and Humor, a family devotional from Laugh Again and Phil Calloway. And to encourage you in your Bible reading, check out our one-year Bible reading plan. To explore all these resources, or to make a donation to this ministry, 
visit backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425.